Hello, Chris here with another installment of the Make It Podcast. Before we get to today's guest, I want to encourage everyone to go to our website at www.bonsai.film and click on the resources link. There you will be able to join our creative community and be given access to an ever-growing slew of film-related resources and tools at your disposal. Of course, at zero cost to your wallet or purse. Again, go to www.bonsai.film to enjoy and leverage our ever-growing resource library amongst many other things like our online shop where you can pick up a Make It hat or hoodie or tee or even a Make It autograph poster, for example. Uh, Also, if you go into our resource library and you have a resource you think the community could benefit from that we do not currently have in the resource library, hit us up. Email us at contact, that's C-O-N-T-A-C-T at bonsai, B-O-N-S-A-I dot film. So contact at bonsai dot film. Send us the resource name and type and we will add it to the library toot suite. Is that a word? Is that a thing? Toot sweet? All right. We're going to go with it. Anyhow, <laughs> on to today's podcast guest. On this episode, we have a conversation with Wes Powers. Wes is an editor and producer living in Los Angeles. He has experience in many areas in the post world, including short and feature films, reality television, and broadcast commercials. He served as an editor on the feature films Inuati and Strategy and Pursuit, and was the assistant editor on All Light Will End. Wes has also won awards for Best Editing at both the 54-Hour Film Festival and the 48-Hour Film Festival in Nashville. He is the co-owner and co-founder of Gold Screen Pictures, and uh, that is a Nashville-based company, even though he's in L.A., and they specialize in film production. All right, enough with the bio. Without further ado, I give you a man that cares more about folders than Windows 2000. Editor Wes Powers. You're listening to Make It, a podcast by Bonsai Creative that helps aspiring professionals in film Get where they're going faster by dissecting the advice, knowledge, and insights of professional creatives in the film industry. I'm your host, Chris Barkley. Hi, my name is Wes Powers, and I am a editor and producer in Los Angeles, California. Um, you may know me for such indie feature films like Strategy and Pursuit, Inuati, Crazy All These Years, and more recently uh, as the assistant editor on All Light Will End. Um, Bonsai Creative had a hand in there. Uh, and another handful of award-winning short films that have screened at various festivals and won various awards. Thank you very much, man. Wow. We have Mr. Wes 
powers on the podcast. I'm super excited and and um for years we we'd gotten to be in this sort of same workspace uh together and um then you made the the big shift and move out to Los Angeles which I I'm a big cheerleader of. Um oh, I'm happy to hear it because a lot of people from Nashville are not big cheerleaders. No, I think I think um I think it's that's interesting. So why do you let me ask you why let's start there. Why do you think they're not? Because I have a question for you after you I guess, give me this. I, I guess well, I don't want to I don't want to overstep and speak for for people, but what a lot I, I remember when my wife and I were moving out here after 5 6 years in in Nashville, a place we still deeply love and feel rooted in. Um a lot of response we got from people was, really? Why do you want to do that? Um, and I think it comes from the fact that Nashville is such a tight-knit film community, and people are very adamant about uh, building and expanding on that community and love Nashville as a, as a hub, as this sort of budding creative uh, film city. And whilst I saw it like that, and instead of my wife, Leslie, like we just we felt like we wanted to sort of move on to new adventures. And I don't know. I, I, I think there's just a negative air connotation around Los Angeles and Hollywood and coming out here to try to try to make it because it seems, it doesn't seem as very feasible, I guess. Yeah. It's, it's a really strange position to take. Uh, I can understand um, fighting the good fight wherever you are, but, but you kind of have to go, like you work primarily in post and one of the big shortcomings of, of Nashville is there, there aren't a whole lot of post houses here. And, and so it's a really, I, I think it's a strange opinion if people know what you really do and, and, and what the opportunities are like in LA or in Atlanta. Uh, yeah. So, and, and I guess I, I, I wanted to just add that I think most of the negative sort of connotations surrounding L.A. doesn't necessarily have to do with the business. I think people just are like cost of living's high. There's too many people. Traffic's terrible. Like it's it's a lot of stuff like that um, as well. So. Yeah. And and I kind of want to touch on that, actually. So um, many, 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 many people. Um, think about this and and say, okay, what do I need to do? When do I need to move? Um, how am I going to move? What that's going to, what is that going to be like? What will that entail? Um, you've been there for over a year now, I believe. So yeah, about a year and a half. Yeah, what would be if you had to maybe list one or two or three things? What would be those must know, must prepare for things before moving to Los Angeles from, let's say, uh, anywhere else except New York? I would say whatever you think you need to save to move out here and get started to like find an apartment and have some cushion money while you're looking for a job, whatever that number is that you've landed on almost double it <laughs> uh, because it's, it's very 
Uh, I mean, unless, you know, everyone has a different experience. Some people might move out here with a job lined up. I didn't, and neither did my wife. I was actually finishing a feature film in Iwadi, uh, and while I was moving out here, so I was about halfway done with it and had the luxury of finishing it right when I moved here. But that only gave me another six weeks of work. And then I was back to looking. Um, but it's, you know, it's it, I, it really like hits you hard um, how different the lifestyle is price wise. I mean, everyone knows the rent's pricey, but there's just little things like. Uh, you get registering your car and uh, electing your car insurance and then you're just your health insurance, but like just little things um, that maybe you planned on, but little things will pop up. We're like, Oh my God, I didn't even think about that. Like doubling in price or that going up that much and just your lifestyle habits. The, the price of beer is $8 here for a beer. And it's not like Nashville where you can get two for five on happy hour, you know? So it's like all these little things that, are ingrained in your lifestyle just you, you have an idea but until you're here living it uh you don't realize so um yeah that's that's my number one thing and that's that's about it um there's nothing else i would say to prepare for it other than just save 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 have a lot of seed money to make the transition and, and know that it's going to be rocky and know that it's going to be a roller coaster and you're going to feel like you made the wrong decision several times <laughs> and you just have to either push through that or uh, change your mind, I guess, if you want to drive all the way back across country, but hell if I'm doing that again. <laughs> so. Yeah. And, and, but I don't even think there's even a problem with that. I mean, we, and this is goes beyond film as a culture, we are so hard on people when they when things don't work out, and I don't understand that. Uh, I think we have to change that in our culture and in our behavior. Uh, sure. When someone takes a risk, we ought to applaud that. And if they if it doesn't work out, that doesn't make them dumb or bad or this misstep. If 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 it didn't work out, and you guys had to come back to Nashville, that would not be viewed as this. Uh, you know, epic terrible, fail. epic, epic Life, fail or yeah. terrible sin. Like, no, you sure. just, you took a shot. You were bullish <clears throat> on yourselves and that's awesome. Like, yeah. And, and I don't, I, again, I want to reiterate that I don't want to put words in anybody's mouth who might know me because a lot of our close friends and, and even just close acquaintances were really supportive um, of us leaving the national community and, and it was a hard decision, but, but mm -hmm. there, you know, there were, there were definitely a few where we got some, some sort of funny looks and <laughs> saying, why would you do that to yourselves? <laughs> well, also the other part of it is, is that, and just knowing how kind of a place Nashville is, those people are not trying to be negative. They're actually trying to be your friend and look out for you, but sure. you know, in the worst possible way. And, you know, in my own life, I've learned a lot of lessons about hubris and, um, you know, I, I remember being homeless for a month, uh, just living in my 1989 Honda Accord in the parking lot of a Kroger. Um, you know, I was a lucky kind of homeless cause I still had a job. I just ha didn't have a job that could cover a rent. Right. So, yeah. but I was all on account of me not wanting to run back to my father's house with my tail between my legs as a, as a sort of budding adult when I was 19. 
uh, or 20, mm-hmm. I think 19. But the irony of it, the funny thing about it is, is I ended up going back there anyway for other reasons. Yeah. And it really didn't make a difference. And no one, no one is thinking about you the way that you think they're thinking about you. So again, yeah. uh, you do what you have to do. This is life. And, and we need to be genuine and authentic ourselves. And we need genuine and authentic people in our, in our lives uh, in general. And, and as far as the LA thing is concerned, I think what's interesting there based on your <laughs> feedback is, is I have this saying about design, which is design informs behavior. And it's so um, it's, it's this undercurrent that people don't notice every day. Like the shape of your dinner table will dictate to you without your free will, uh, essentially is what I'm saying, how to sit at the table yeah, and how you're going to eat every day. And the size of your refrigerator is going to design for you without you thinking, are you having any free will, how much you spend and buy at the grocery store. Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. So when you go to a new city, that new design informs your new behavior. So maybe now you drink beer less. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. It's an adjustment period, um, and and you you know you get there, you adjust, like any big step in your life or any big change. So mm-hmm. going back a little bit in your life, it's so interesting because so many people that we interview they have a story about when it just clicked for them, when they just knew they were going to want to be in performance or they were going to write or something their parents put them in. But let me know if I'm right about this. You wanted to be a dentist. Is that right? How, how I guess, I guess I think we talked about this. Um, I did in high school for some odd reason. I wanted to be a dentist. So, um, so you were going to college to be a dentist. Take take us through this thought process and, and, and the story. Well, I didn't actually go to college to be a dentist, thankfully. I came to my senses and realized I wanted to burden myself with uh, an artistic career. But, um, yeah, I don't know. I think I growing up, I always excel. And this is not to sound like braggy at all, but I, I was just good in math and science growing up it was sort of my forte and i had a lot of friends who were also math science heavy really intelligent friends and they all as we grew older and were in high school and you know thinking about careers and colleges they were like oh i'm gonna go study medicine i'm gonna go be an accountant and something got i think i don't know i guess it was a social thing and the people I was hanging around got put in my brain that I was I needed to pursue some sort of I don't know normal career in that field and in in a field uh, that I excelled at in school I guess uh, or a subject that would apply <laughs> properly and uh, I'd always had I'd always had a love for film I always loved movies I oh, I had carried around a camera in high school and always filmed things it was more of a hobby I would edit random things on windows movie maker, um, you know, on the weekends and I never thought of it as a career. So, but one, yeah, one day I, I, um, I can't tell you exactly what I was doing, what I was thinking, but I had applied to a school that was, um, a dental school and was sort of on that path to go there. 
And I walked up to my mom one evening and I was like, so I don't want to be a dentist. I think I want to go to film school. And she was like, okay, let's look at film schools. And then that was the shift. <laughs> she was basically like, all right, like it's totally accepting. And she, she was just like, that makes sense. That's so cool. And I was like, well, well, why didn't you tell me? <laughs> but, um, she, you know, she, it's, she's a great mother and I think she was just there to support me and whatever I wanted to do. And thankfully she wasn't one of those mothers that was like, well, that's unrealistic. You don't want to, you shouldn't want to be an artist, blah, blah, blah. You know? Um, so I'm glad, you know, I never looked back after that. I went to film school and never changed my major and here we are. And you're from the Midwest, right? You went to Southern yes. Illinois? Southern Illinois, Carbondale. Yes. Carbondale. Yeah. And so maybe it was just that Midwestern sensibility where you're like, okay, uh, I shouldn't pursue arts. I should pursue this, this other thing that my friends are doing. Uh, yeah. But, but like you said, you kind of came to your senses. Yeah. Not a lot of people I knew were pursuing artistic careers. And it's funny because there are people in my high school class that, you know, I'm friends, I'm friends with on Facebook that I knew and I remember and had a, uh, some form of a relationship with, but wasn't, I wouldn't consider myself close friends with, but I see people doing artistic careers all over, um, different cities, different States and some who stayed in our hometown and are like authors and writing books. And like, I never knew, I never knew all of, these people in my high school class like had these artistic passions. <laughs> it's like, maybe I didn't pay attention or something, but it did feel taboo at the time to, to want to pursue something like that, I guess. And I was young, you know, like every young person, you don't have it all figured out. So you don't really know what your brain's telling you. Yeah. But, but I think you had that sense of adventure and that's probably why it's, it's easy for you to sort of go two feet in on a, on a move across the country too, without having a job in place, et cetera. It might just be part of who you are. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. Which yeah. is, which is awesome. Uh, awesome. But you didn't, you went to school, you did not go to school to be an editor. You went to be a DP. So why did you make the switch? Um, yeah, well, so SIU doesn't really have my, my college doesn't have, um, specialty degrees. When you graduate, you get a cinema and photography degree. So everyone kind of do whatever they want. But I did, um, take a lot of cinematography based courses. Um, I think cinematography was an easy transition for me to go from, I'm a guy who likes movies to, Oh, films are actually an art form that you can study and appreciate beyond just um, a, a fun entertainment level. And the, as I went, because I, I, I never really looked at movies that way um, until I went to college and started taking film courses. And I was like, oh, there's pretty shots and there's this camera move. Like I started understanding um, what made the images, you know, films a visual medium. So that's just the first thing I sort of latched onto um, as uh, from an artistic perspective to film. Mm -hmm. um, and so, yeah, I just got really interested in that and, and beautiful cinematography and different movies. And um, so I thought for a long time that I was like, well, I want to, I want to be that guy. I want to be the guy who makes the pretty pictures. And uh, when I moved to Nashville, I was actively pursuing that for a while. I bought a camera and started going out there and asking like everybody, any musician I could find, like, hey, I'll shoot your music video for free just to get experience. And um, I did some of that. I did some low budget 
but and I also edited them because like many people getting started in Nashville, you sort of just have to be a jack of all trades and go out and just do everything, um, anything and everything to get noticed. So I would shoot little videos and then edit them myself. And I don't know, I just, as time went on, I got less and less interested in, in what it means or in what it takes to be a full fledged professional DP, um, say on a big feature film. I, I, the the knowledge base you have to have of all the gear and the equipment and what you the lighting sources and what they all do and it it just seemed like a um yeah I I I just pivoted somehow I I think I people along the way told me I was better at editing or something and or I or I was I started liking I can't, I can't tell you that exact moment um where I pivoted. <laughs> Um, it just sort of happened. It just hit. like I, I remember Maybe that moment when you got paid to edit and, and didn't I, get paid to be a cinematographer. Yeah. Well, yeah. And the last thing I did was the project I was working on with my, um, well, before she was my wife, um, girlfriend at the time, I guess, um, we were working on this web series pilot called gratuity, not included. And I was going to, I was the technically the DP of that. And, but I was also going to edit it. And I remember the process of shooting it. I had gotten um, a Nashville, D, a pretty prominent Nashville DP right now. His name's Brian Featherston, um, to be my gaffer. And he was a college buddy who, and we worked on a lot of stuff together. And on set, he just seemed more interested in the image than I was. Like he, he was the reason why I think that um, project looked as good as it did. Mm-hmm. And he was just always much more interested. And, and I, on set, I was like, I don't really, I don't really care about this. I don't really care about being behind the camera. I just want to get this part over with so I can take it into my computer and cut it up, (laughs) you know? (laughs) And so it was, I think it was just, maybe that's the moment then maybe that's the, that's the, that was the nail in the coffin of where I'm, I'm like, I'm never shooting anything again. Um, I can still appreciate really good cinematography and have that, knowledge base which i think is important for an editor to have um a knowledge base of all aspects of film production and filmmaking but um but yeah i just liked editing more that's a that's a great segue into the next question because i think you had the you were open enough to because look you have 32 credits uh, all said and done, some for writing, some for cinematography, some f- most for editing. But you did start out trying to do some cinematography work, and then you found that you fell in love with something else along the way, which is which, because you were open to it and hearing that feedback. And so I'm wondering, you know, what advice do you have that you've picked up along the way, you know, as part of your journey that you could share with some of the listeners? Um, uh, maybe as it pertains to cinematography, maybe as it pertains to editing or even as it pertains to just finding your way in, in, in the art life. Oh boy. Um, well, I would say the biggest piece of advice that I take to heart is to not be a bullhead. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, yeah, because I think yeah, everyone's got an ego and has their own sensibilities and idea of what's what's best. And, um, you know, 
I want to speak specifically to editing since it's, it's my focus and it's probably the best I can talk to. Like as an editor, you know, you're, you're basically that last piece in the, almost that last piece in the puzzle. If you don't count like scoring and color grading and audio mixing, but you're sort of the last piece on the filmmaking puzzle. And I think we tend to think we're as editors doing brain surgery or (laughs) like we are brain surgery. Like we're, I don't know. I, 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 t- I think sometimes we get, we, our egos get in the way and we think um, we have the most genius ideas on how to either like fix the film or, or make it better. If it's already good or whatever. And um, I've seen editors sometimes lose sight of the collaborative process and get really frustrated when they get notes from like the director or and then the producer and the executive producers. And they forget that it is a collaborative process and nothing, no notes, people are giving you, especially the people who are, who own, own the film or brought the film to you, who hired you. Um, it's their vision ultimately. And if they have notes, they're not, they're not personal. They're not digs at your intellect or your creativity. They're not telling you you're, um, yeah, you know, you're not as good as you think you are. It's just, they're just trying to make the best product. So, Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, that, that's that's the biggest thing. I, I just don't don't be a bullhead. Don't don't let your ego get in the way of, of the process. Just remember that everyone everyone's goal, um, specifically with uh, making a film or a television show or what what have you, is it, it's all about the end product. The goal is to make the best project you possibly can, and nothing is personal um, as far as your contributions to the pro- project. <laughs> Yeah, it's critical because an editor really does control how an actor's performance is seen and and understood and absorbed. Wouldn't you say? Sure. Yeah. I mean, in in a sense, we have. I don't want to say we, but editors have that um, that power, I guess. But you know, if if it's not there, if it wasn't filmed on set, if the script wasn't there, it's like all these. It's you're just like a gear in the machine. So you can sculpt. I mean, some of the best editors in the world can probably sculpt incredible performances out of a performance that maybe wasn't so good on set or something like by stitching all these pieces together. But I would say 99% of the time it's you're only as good as the people around you and the people that do their jobs properly. Um, Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm a firm believer in that. I don't know if other editors are, but I, I mean, anybody I've ever worked with any other director, I'm like the number one thing, the most important thing to me is that we have an open relationship about what's good and what's not good and what we like and don't like and what we think works. It doesn't work for the end product. And, um, as long as, you know, everyone's honest and, and doing the best job that they can, hopefully you come out with a good product, but I think it's I think it's crazy to think that like any aspect of a film falls on a singular entity, um, and it's it's funny because like in in the big leagues like the directors get the brunt of everything. If a movie's bad, it's like oh that director sucks. Mm-hmm. But it's like you know maybe the, maybe it was the screenwriter, maybe the producer did a terrible job making this all come together. Maybe they really thought they made a great film and there was a great film, and it just this it wasn't handled properly. Maybe people didn't collaborate well. You know, you never know what could have gone wrong. Uh, I mean, obviously, there are just very bad movies. There are bad scripts, bad 
everything. <laughs> but uh, um, it's never one person's fault, I think is what I'm trying to say. Uh, I, I agree with that. And Nick and I have definitely been part of very collaborative processes, and we've been part of processes that had had challenges uh, for for sure. Um, going back a little bit, you got your start. I think most people that know you would say, "Hey, yeah, we know about the web series, you know, Cup of Joe, oh, gosh. And, and and that you did with with you know Joey Von Hager, um, oh. our good our good buddy." Um, but but. Your first gig was it? Was it actually Captain Courageous and his prissy son? And and what the hell is that? Oh Lord, that was my that's <laughs> I can't believe you even said that. Uh, that was my <laughs> thesis. That was my senior thesis film in college that no one will ever see, thankfully. And I'm saving everyone. <laughs> so so desc- describe yeah. this film because it's it's a 17 minute short. Oh gosh, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I. <laughs> I, uh, in my senior thesis in Carbondale, basically, it, when I can't remember if we started it. it, it spans, yeah, it was our senior year and it spans the whole year because half the semester you're in production and the second half you're in post production. And for your senior thesis, you can either um, work collaboratively with other filmmakers on making a, sing- a single film, or you can go out and do your own thing. And the way it works is I was in a, a class where everybody who wants to make a film, wants to di- write it, wants to direct a film, submits a script. And I didn't, this wasn't my film, by the way, I, I wanted to be the cinematographer. So, um, mm-hmm. separating I, yourself nicely there. Yeah. So I latched on, <laughs> I'm not saying it's bad. I'm saying it's a, it's a college thesis film. And right, it's, it's a collaboration. It's before I knew anything about anything, really. It's like, mm-hmm. I only have this skill. You can only learn so much from college. I mean, most of your craft comes from experience and practice. Right. And so in college, it's like you have the, the knowledge, but it's you haven't practiced enough. So nothing you do is going to be good. Um, and this, there's this uh, filmmaker or writer in our class, Dan McAllister, and he, I don't know if I should name him. He probably doesn't care. But he wrote this really weird movie about a kind of a, a weird dystopian town of uh, where the parents essentially decided we're living this delusion where they thought that they were superheroes and it was the only way to like keep happiness in the town. If I remember right, I haven't mm-hmm. watched this film in a very long time. And um, so the story focused on this like father and son and the father He's totally sucked into this world where he thinks he's a superhero like the rest of the adults in this town. And his son, he drags his son along with it. And his son is constantly trying to snap him out of this delusion. And, and it's it's about people not facing their problems head on, like where we live in this sort of this world of poverty and and, and we're not dealing with life. And so we're we're playing pretend to, to sh- you know, shield our eyes from the real world. Right. And so it's like the kid who snaps his dad out of out of this delusion um in concept it's it was it sounded cool and, yeah, i was gonna and, say it kind of uh, sounds like it has some promise there if it's executed yeah you know with the script that is hey we can always remake it bonsai creative production no, I'm just <laughs> uh, i don't have the rights but but anyway i i shot that and um i at the time i was actually pretty proud of work i mean you know we all we had to shoot on 16 millimeter film and so that was a really cool experience learning how to shoot on 
actual film. We were one of the last. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Classes actually at our school, because I think the freshman class that came in right after us, they changed the curriculum um, to where it was all digital. So I think we, it was either the class right after us or the class right after that. So we were one of the last classes to uh, where it was actually required to shoot our thesis film on film. And so that was a nice experience. And then, you know, we sent it off to a lab and got developed and then, you know, what do you think is the uh, number one thing you learned from that, that first experience? If you had to pull out one thing that caused you to level up, let's say. Oh, um, really, uh, that the people you're working with, uh, I, I didn't have a good relationship working relationship with this director. We're not enemies by any means, but creatively and collaboratively, um, I, I don't think we vibed very well on set and there was a lot of frustration and anger with just sort of the way the project was handled. But again, and I, I'm, it's, I sound so serious talking about this. It was a college project. So of course we're going to make mistakes and people are going to do things poorly. But Absolutely. I remember, I remember at the time thinking like, I liked the project, but I'm not sure if I liked who I was collaborating with. And that, you never want that. Like you got the worst nightmare. I think probably of any person on set is to like the people, um, sort of at the, the bubble line crew, whether it's like a director, producer, or whatever the people sort of making the film who hired you are not getting along. And it's like this palpable tension. I don't know if you've ever been on a set where things have gotten awkward because people are vibing creatively. I'm sure a I, lot. I, I mean, played the fifth. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's not all peaches and cream. And, you know, I'm sure like even collaborators who work well, really well together and have worked on several films together have had little tips here and there. But um, I think, you know, when you don't vibe creatively with somebody and you're like, OK, I can't work with you anymore in this capacity. And um, I wish I would have asked more questions and talked more. Um, on the front end about the vision and the process and before I sort of just jumped in and agreed to do it. <laughs> so understood. And that's, that's college projects for you for, for yeah. sure. Um, you know, when I was in college, anytime there was a group project, it would take about two meetings before I found out I was going to end up doing all the work or I just was going to accept the fact that we weren't going to get an A uh, so, so, um, to totally get it. You know, one thing we, we talk about in these conversations and we hope that it's helpful are some of the creative and, and business mistakes that, that you can make along the way, you know, on your path. And you'd mentioned earlier in this conversation, uh, coming to Nashville and just, getting with musicians and saying, Hey, I'll film your music video for free. So you could get that experience and get that exposure. So with that as a contextual backdrop, I'm wondering what your opinion is and what your thought is on, um, when you should work for free and when you should charge and, and how to protect yourself in those scenarios where you do want to charge and people, might expect you to work for free or, or you've done some other projects for free? 
Oh my gosh, that is a really hard answer or hard thing to answer. Um, I think in a nutshell, or just to, as a short answer, I would say when you're starting out, you have to almost assume if you want to do. Okay, so let's. I'm just going to go from a very specific example. So, um, if you're starting out, you want to be an editor, and your goal is to edit films, scripted films. Um, no one's going to pay you to do that if you have never done it before, and no one's going to pay to. No one's going to pay for you to do it if you've if you've even done it like a couple times. Um, maybe, but very. It'll be pennies. It won't be enough for you to make your rent. So you know, work whatever job you need to work, whether it's in the industry or not, um, whatever you can stomach to get by, but do as many free projects as you can that will help you build towards your end goal. Do as many as you can until you can start charging. And I know that's not really an answer. That's kind of, kind of skirting around the answer, but I think there will reach a point where you've, I can't say an exact number, like do five short films for free. And then you can start telling people it costs them. But, um, I, I think you'll know, um, when you feel confident enough because, because there's a, there's a certain level of confidence when you go, when you sell yourself to somebody, if a director interviews you to be the editor of their short film or feature film or whatever, like you actively know if you're lying about your skill set or if you know you can handle the job. Mm-hmm. Um, and that they'll know too. They'll, they'll know if you're, if you're BSing. So I think you'll reach a point where you're confident enough to say, you know what? I've done four short films pro bono. They've turned out really well. A, a couple of them, maybe one of them got into a festival or two you know, the directors have spoken highly of me. They said they want to work with me again. Next time someone comes to me, you set a rate. You say, I, I can only do your short film for $500, even if it's a low rate. And you just start building upon that. Um, I think you have to, you have to be, if, if you're going to charge somebody, and I, I don't want to say this is like a negative thing, but like, especially in, in a town like, uh, Nashville, where there are not there aren't a lot of huge budgets that that fly around for um, narrative projects. It's a lot of people doing labor of love kind of work or very low budgeted kind of stuff. Right. Um, and to to charge somebody somebody to work on, and I, I mean there's there's a lot of good projects that that do pay and in, uh, in Nashville, but I think to tell somebody like definitively this is going to be my rate, you have to be able to back that up with like a body of work that says, this is why, this is why you have to pay me this much. And it's because I've done X, Y, and Z and it's gotten into A, B, and C film festival. And I got this editing award for whatever. Um, and I'm sorry so, to interject, interject here, Wes, but, no, you're fine, but would, you're fine. Would, you, would you say the advice is different? Are, are you intimating that the advice is different depending on where your market is? Like, like if you lived in Atlanta or LA or New York, would, would, is that, different advice? Like, would you start out not doing things for free? Are you saying free no matter where you are and then, and then scale up? The the thing, the thing that's different that I found, and it's, it's hard from my perspective because, 
Um, I did do, uh, I had a few credits when I, when I moved out here, I, I, I'd done a handful of things to like have that confidence level to say like, you know, somebody approached me to do a film, a feature or a short, I would charge them. I wouldn't, I don't do any pro bono editing work anymore, but, um, when I came out here, there is a, there, there's a lot of groups like Facebook groups and, um, there, there's an overabundance of people looking for editors on their short, short films or really low budget features and everybody's paying. Nobody's expecting you to do pro bono work. Right. Um, right. For the, for the most part, like um, in terms of what I've seen and what I've like the, the Facebook groups that I've um, been involved with that uh, post uh, more indie uh, driven projects uh, like job listings, uh, they'll always be like looking for editor. This is the rate. And it's, you know, it's never, it might not be amazing or they won't even post the rate. They'll just say, we're looking for an editor and, you know, send us your rate. Uh, I've seen, I've seen less, less of, um, less people sort of asking you to work for free out here, I guess. Gotcha. Than I didn't, and maybe, maybe that's just perspective. The, the expectation like, is different. Yeah. Yeah. Got it. And, and, um, that, that's that awesome. I don't want that to come off like, no. Uh, it's a shot at any city or anything because it's not at all. I'm just, it's like a, it's just a matter of perspective. It's, I can only speak to what I've seen in both cities. Um, well, I don't think it came up. No. Yeah. Not at all. And, and disclaimer for the audience right now, uh, you are listening to Wes Powers, who is <laughs> one of the nicest human beings on the planet. Like, like this is no joke impossible to dislike this individual. And, and so he's literally not trying to offend your city <laughs> right now. Uh, yeah, I mean, people are like, well, I don't like this guy at all. What is he <laughs> You're impossible not to like my man. You're impossible. not. I, to lo- like. I love Nashville and the Nashville film community. I will just say that I'm not pandering whatsoever. I really do. I owe a lot to that city because it's where I built my credits and found myself and found my niche and, and really developed my skills as an editor. I, I have a lot of respect for the film community and the talented people who live there um, and continue to like fight for, for Nashville film because it's, it's something that needs to expand. It just didn't, it just didn't as quickly as I hoped for when I moved there. I, I, I thought it was going to get bigger, faster. Um, and it's different from an editing perspective. Like if you, read any blog on the internet about where you should go to be an editor, they will say New York or LA because that's where people do post. Mm-hmm. And that's just like the cold hard facts, but if you're doing anything else, you can make a pretty great living. In places yeah. like now. So yeah, that is, thank you for that. I think that's going to be seriously valuable because that is a, that is something new creatives and, and art people trying to just live the art life, live the creative life. They have to cross that, that path they have to cross that um, place in their career no matter what art they're creating at some point where you make that transition from from i'm just sharing at scale uh, my stuff for free and now you know i'm a pro um one thing about you is that you you are a serious serious movie buff you 
um, mentioned it earlier uh, in our chat that you have a podcast named The Poor Man's Movie Review that you, that you co-founded. And this is a, a sort of a labor of love podcast. Uh, and you guys do these really sort of, you know, um, it, it's not it's funny because the title is Poor Man's Movie Review. And I've listened to a lot of these episodes but you guys don't really have a poor man's take on these. You guys actually come, your take on it is actually quite technical. And, and from a, a movie loving standpoint, um, you're also an insane fan of the two people I'm, I'm about to name. So, so I'm going to ask you a, uh, an impossible question. Uh, okay. If you could only right. go to lunch with one of them, would you go to lunch with David Fincher or Eminem? <laughs> Come on, Chris. Uh, <laughs> I have to because he would, he's, uh, he would have be a lot more beneficial to my career, I would think, if okay. he would be, if I was even worthy enough to sit down with him. You, you know, um, you know that's that's tough. Uh, and, and yeah, <laughs> for the listeners out there, I'm a long-term Eminem fan and have been since my youth. Uh, I know. What is your favorite Fincher film, and what is your favorite Eminem song? God, you're really like bringing out the wild card questions. I I remember getting an email saying these are the questions, <laughs> and none of these questions have been in this podcast. It's called bait and switch. <laughs> I know. Why did I think about my answers earlier? Um, my favorite David Fincher film. Um, can I say what my favorite is and what I think his best film is? And I won't really give much of an explanation. Of course. Of course. Okay. My, my favorite David Fincher film is Seven because I'm just a morbid person who likes really dark, depressing things. <laughs> um, and yeah, I, I could watch that film over and over again and still get something new out of it. Um and then I think his best film by not I don't want to say by a long shot, but I think his best film is The Social Network. I think it is um, the quintessential like perfect Fincher movie. Um, that's just everything across the board: writing, directing, acting, is um, cultural relevance um, is top notch. Uh, I rewatched it recently with my wife, and we were just. It's it's crazy how how well that movie holds up even on like the tenth viewing of it. Uh, to me, at least, I don't know how the listeners feel. That's great. And your favorite uh, Eminem song? Those are both great choices, by the way. Social Network and Seven. Um, I have a poster of Seven up on my wall here um, oh. that I look at every day, and uh, yep. it's it's a really cool stylized poster. Um, I wish I had a second one. I'd just send it to you now that I know it's your favorite. If I find a second one, because I have a few of these extras, yeah. uh, like I'm I have one of, for- I have one of Memento. I have one of um, American Beauty. I have one of Pulp Fiction. If I, if I have an extra one, I'll send it to you. Please do. I need a piece of artwork above my computer. There's like a big blank spot on my wall that I've been looking for. Um, favorite Eminem song that's that's really hard that's even harder than the Fincher question because Fincher's made like six movies and Eminem's made like hundreds of songs I know maybe I should if, if you can't do song we can reduce it to album oh like a little well, bit that's, more that's really easy I mean that's the Marshall Mathers LP mm-hmm. his second album I mean yeah. it's you know let's 
let's be real here. I mean, you know, Eminem's a pretty hateful guy, or he was in his youth, and and a lot of this stuff he says. I don't want to make this like a PSA, but <laughs> um, <laughs> that that was a great album for when it came out, and and is is like a a staple in you know the evolution of hip hop, and I think I'll. I'll forever respect it, even though looking back, it's like, whoa, I can't believe he said some of that stuff. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah exactly. That's, that's pretty, pretty horrendous. But, um, yeah, yeah it, the shock value of it at the time was was way overboard where we already there was already a precedent set sort of by, you know, the NWAs of the world and, and the top authorities and the, you know, yeah. these type of rap groups where you're like, it can't get any more explicit. Yeah. And he took it one other place that we'd never been before. And I don't think we're still comfortable with it because I don't think there's been a rapper afterwards that has really sort of been all in on his baby's mama or all in on, on his own mother, uh, the, the way, the way he was, but he's, he's also just such a wizard with his wordplay. Uh, he has a collaboration with big Sean, uh, that I still marvel at that. Um, yeah. Yeah. You, you actually came with to that song. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I forgot yeah. we even talked about that. Yeah, so it's yeah. it's uh, I think came out last year, and it just the uh, you have to listen to it, you know, a good ten times to get some of the double and triple entendres he he kind of has in there. Because if you listen to it the first time, it actually you actually just thinks he's saying words, just random stuff, and then you realize oh oh, and you just keep having these oh moments um, that that are that are just. Awesome. And and the crazy thing is, is most of his songs are, are like that. Um, yeah. And I think like, um, last, I know this is a film podcast, but, uh, the thing with the Marshmallows LP that you, when you look back on it and listen to it now, it, it can come off in retrospect is just sort of shocking and controversial for the sake of being shocking and controversial. But you have to remember the time period of, of this was very post Columbine. Like this was still, um, a very relatively recent thing that had happened where government, American government were, were blaming video games and musicians like Eminem and Marilyn Manson for um, these sort of heinous crimes that happened to sort of skirt around the issue of gun violence and, uh, you know, this and that. I don't want to turn off any listeners, but uh, his, his, just his indictment of, of culture and, and their, their, what responsibility do uh, musicians and entertainers actually have, I think is really interesting to, um, to, yeah, to sort of take away from, from his album. I think he does say a lot of uh, poignant, you don't have to agree with it all, but, um, or at all, but he says a lot of things that make you think on that album, aside from the more shocking stuff. Yeah. Could not agree with you more. He's, he's, He's in my top five, so uh, for sure. Um, Recently, you started doing another shift in your life. I know we talked a a little bit about moving from being a dentist to a filmmaker, from from being a a DP to an editor. But now you've started writing a little bit as well. You've mentioned your wife, uh, Leslie Powers, um, formerly Leslie Sardi. Um, You started writing with her a little bit, and... Uh, what's that process been like? And then two, um, there are a lot of creatives that have come on and talked to us and uh, that have 
spouses, but not all of them have spouses that are themselves in the industry. So what are some of the, what would you say are some of the upsides or, um, and challenges to, to being married to another creative? Yeah, it's, it's an interesting, um, combo Leslie and I, because we're, it almost perfectly fits in that she is I'm a, a director and I'm an editor, uh, which is one of the most <laughs> important film relate. If yeah, I would argue the most important film relationship, but I think a DP like Josh Moody would probably argue with me on that one. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think a director editor is one of the most important relationships. And I've even heard, you know, some like, uh, Sally Menke, Quinn Tarantino, uh, rest in peace, Quinn Tarantino's, uh, former editor. Uh, I remember, listening to them talk about how or him talk about how um or maybe it was her one of them said they spend more time with the other than they do their their own spouse and it just speaks to that relationship of being in post-production for a film with as an editor with a director and um and vice versa so we've had the luxury of of working on several projects together and um i would say 99.9 percent of the time it's it's wonderful because the we have a there, there are no barriers or walls between us, so we can be 100% honest. I think both of us can get, let our egos get in the way. But, I mean, I wouldn't say get in the way. I think both of us are, are going to, uh, we're going to argue our points more if I think something's better or versus if she thinks something better. Um, but, um yeah, because because sorry, I got a little lost in my thoughts there. Um, but because we have we don't have that any communication barriers, uh, we can be 100% honest with us, which is as I spoke to earlier, what what I think is the most important aspect of the director editor relationship. So so it's been wonderful when we're working on posts on a film. I'm not saying there's been some heated arguments, but they're always creative arguments, and those are the best arguments, I think. Um, yeah. So that's that's been great, actually. Um, I I have yet to have a qualm, an actual qualm, um, working with her creatively. And we this writing thing just sort of came out of nowhere. She started writing a, a feature script and um, wrote a draft, and it's really great. And I, she wanted me to read it and trust my opinion. And I had some notes, and then we started talking more and more to, more about it. And, um, I kind of threw out some ideas that made her rethink the structure and, um, some of the characters and a new way to sort of approach it. And we ended up going back. She ended up wanting to go back to ground zero and just asked if I would write it with her. Um, and, That's awesome. and be, being like her husband, I always want, and I think she wants this for me. She wants, we want to make sure that, we're not inserting ourselves into each other's opportunities or each other's creative projects uh, if it's not warranted. And so I think we have that. Is that a, is that an unspoken rule or I, I, well, no, it's, it's a spoken rule. I mean, we've talked heavily about um, not, not just assuming any projects we, we do or, or get like, I mean, I've, I've worked on, even since I've been here, I've worked with other direct, a couple handful of directors on short films that, she had nothing to do with that. We're just like me and that director. Um, and she's done, she's had other writing projects and, and done other things that I haven't been a part of. But um, 
if it makes sense, I mean, she, she asked me and I was like, are you comfortable with that? Do you want to collaborate with me in a writing? So, I mean, it's, it's just a conversation like any, um, creative. It's like, we, I think we have this ability to, to snap in and out of, um, we're husband and wife to we're creative colleagues at the same time. It's, it's, it's very interesting. We like seamlessly, um, can go between the two. And when we're in work mode and, and talking about a potential movie, we're going to write together. It's just, it's just all business. Like, are we, does this, is this going to work? Um, right. right. And yeah. So yeah. And so I, I, I said, yes. And we, we've been, we're, 85 pages into that script and we're uh in the middle of our third act and probably have another 10 to 15 pages more to write and it's been really good <laughs> you mentioned just being a darker kind of guy especially when it comes to your movies and your art or do you write a little bit darker than she does and is it complimentary in that way yeah i think we sort of balance each other out and come because there's always the thing when you're writing a screenplay, if you're, especially if you're doing with another person, well, and I can't really speak much to writing, um, like some of the other people like Maki, obviously on this podcast, but, um, cause I have, I've dabbled in it and I, I don't consider myself to be a good writer by any means, but I do very much enjoy it. Um, and, uh, I think we balance each other out because I wouldn't say she doesn't write, like dark Leslie Leslie really likes satire um mm-hmm. and I, I really like dark satire and and stuff like that so uh even though some of our I don't know I think I even though like some of our favorite films might be on opposite end, end of the spectrum um they definitely our sensibilities cross over a lot and especially like when we spend a lot of time honing the structure and the outline and the different scenes and the overarching story and things we wanted to explore in this before we even began writing the screenplay. And so once we got to the actual writing, once we worked through all those kinks and started the actual screenwriting process, like it, it felt like we were in sync at that point. Um, gotcha. So, yeah. Love that. Thank you for that. And I, I know that's not, it's a, it's a tough question to kind of answer yeah. something because I hope I didn't ramble too much. Well, no, yeah. you, you didn't. It's just, it's just a matter of you're talking about somebody you have to live with after you answer the question. Sure, <laughs> so, yeah. And she's in the living room. So you can right. probably hear me. Right. So it's, it, it can, it can be, it can be difficult. Um, I'm curious, you know, you've done feature films, short films, commercials. Uh, you co-founded your own production company in gold screen productions and that, that you still have. Uh, you've kind of done it all on the editing side. If you had one month to teach someone how to be a competent editor uh, of a feature film, what would be the first three things you would teach? Oh my gosh, Chris. <laughs> um, well, the first thing I would teach uh, out the gate is organizational structure. Uh, it's I. It's something I still see professional editors do or not do is have a succinct organized like hard drive and like the way they organize their assets and their files. And like when you're dealing with a feature film, you could be dealing with, you know, 30 days of a film, hundreds and hundreds and terabytes 
mm-hmm. or hundred gigs and, and terabytes of footage and and you're managing all this media and like you have to keep everything you have to know where everything is at the drop of a hat and i see editors and smaller projects just be so disorganized with the way they and so sloppy with the way they handle ingesting media or adding music or just where where they put things in their hard drive so if it was somebody who um, do, you, do you break your folders down by day yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, ha- I have a, um, like an organization. Your, talk to us a little have, bit about your system. Oh, gosh. Uh, I guess I can pull it up just to look. Um, but I, I have a editing template, like a folder structure template. Um, that I, So anytime I get a project, I have this um, folder on my hard drive that says editing template. It's at the top of everything. And I get a new project, I duplicate that folder. I rename it the project name of whatever film or project I'm working on. And within that folder are um, various folders. So you have one that's a project folder and there would be your premiere or after effects um, projects. And then there's another folder for footage. And so there, that's where you put all your raw media Um, And then there's another folder for audio. And then within the audio folder, there's production audio, which is your audio that was recorded on set. But then there's folders for VO, for sound effects, for LMF files, for your mix mix, um, files uh, once it gets sound mixed. Um, And then back to the main (laughs) process, it's probably getting really confusing. Then there's a documents folder for any scripts or shot lists or anything you need to reference. And then there's a graphics folder a music folder. Um, and then I have a reviews folder, which would be, um, lower resolution cuts or scenes or, uh, rough edits of anything. And then I have a final exports folder, which is self-explanatory, which would be like your final export. Um, so, and so that's a template I just keep in, um, keeps me organized. And then even within the projects folder, I have a template premiere, like a premiere project template. So, all I have to do is rename the premiere project template, whatever the project is, open it up. And then within the premiere project, you will see a very similar bin folder structure mm-hmm. uh, that has like sequences, footage, audio. Um, so uh, yeah. So, and, and it's a good habit to get in because a, it it's the consistency factor of every time you start a new project, you have the exact same folder structure for everything. So you always know where things are. And then B, it just gets you in the habit of like, especially if you're working on a feature film where you're going to have to collaborate with all a bunch of other people in the post process, like sound mixers and color um, people do color grading and um, or, wow, colorists and uh, VFX people where you have to share all these assets with people you have to make sure you're organized and know where everything's going um this feature film i did in Uwadi was a um big not huge but a, a bigger creature feature camp with a lot of special effects and they were doing a lot of post-production visual effects so i had to make sure like you know everything was managed properly so that i could hand that off confidently to them <laughs> and know and then when they hand stuff back to me i know exactly where that goes and where to place it um because it's very easy to lose things when you're dealing with that 
that much weight. So that was a long-winded answer for that would be the very no, first that's time. that's my <laughs> fault. Uh, that's that's my fault. I got you on an aside, but I want to thank you for that okay. because going into that level of detail, I think a listener that has a career in editing or or is pursuing that can literally take what you said and apply it to their own life with one listen and just sort of skip the 100 hours they might need to, to get to that point through experience. So that was huge. So, uh, sorry about that. If I, no, <laughs> if, no, I took, if I took you down a rabbit hole there, but, but, uh, yeah, go ahead. So that was number one. What, what is number two? Ah, oh, man. I'm like, okay. The question was getting somebody prepped for, to, to be like a competent editor in, in, in three days of a, of a or I'm sorry, in 30 days of a feature film. Well, I mean, the next, I think you need to make sure you know where you're going. Um, and that sounds kind of cryptic, but it means where, um, what is the final output of this movie going to be? Is it going to be a 4K theater release is the is the audio mix going to be in like 5.1 dolby is it gonna you need to make sure you talk to like anybody and everybody about the end goal of this because a lot of mistakes can be made if you don't know that stuff on the front end you can kind of cost yourself a lot of time by setting up the project wrong or not not properly uh converting your media or, or whatever like it mm -hmm. um I mean, that, that's a big thing I would say too, is like, take your, take your media and make sure you're working with, um, proxy files, which are going to be less intensive, smaller files that are going to allow your system to, to not bog down and, and run smoothly. When you get pretty deep in the editing process, the more you, you build on a project and the, the more you edit, the more you add to a timeline, to a sequence, you're your project's going to slow down if you're working with like, you know, a, a lot of people kind of with Premiere, they just, Premiere's looked at as this sort of drag and drop sort of edit software. And that's, that is kind of the beauty of it. You can sort of just pull in anything and then just start editing, mm -hmm. but you have to make sure you do all this, do this work on the front end of managing your media and, and creating those props, creating those like lower weight proxy files. So that like down the road, when you're six, seven, eight weeks into editing, your project's not running like a snail. And then you have the director and the producer in your room and you're like, oh, hey, pull up that one scene. And then like, oh, you get the spinning Mac wheel and you can barely scrub through your timeline because you didn't properly set everything up and like um, make sure you were working with small media files. And, and so I think people tend to... They, they, they get so wrapped up in, I just want to start cutting. I just want to start being creative. And they forget about the discipline of like all the prep work. Like, I mean, I don't, if I, any feature film I started on, like it's, it's days of prep work and, and creating proxy, proxy media and syncing audio and, and make sure everything is properly sorted in your bins and then, and then set up your editing. Everyone has a sort of a different workflow with the way they like to edit um, so like, make sure you're setting yourself up for the, what's going to allow you to edit as quickly and efficiently as possible. Um, don't just sort of willy nilly throw things all around your, <laughs> your edit, your premiere project. And 
because then then you just you get you get bogged down and confused and and you lose things and and yeah it's a <laughs> again that's another another rambly answer but it's it's really just it, it all it all just goes back to organization and discipline and um not getting ahead of yourself right so right uh, now we have organizational structure we've got know where you're going which sounds cryptic but you broke it down for us so i love that is there anything else you would teach within that month anything craft related uh, uh, on top of the organizational structure and knowing where you're going or anything network related or interpersonal? This is one, this is one I have to call here. Here's one. Um, cause I, it's hard for me to speak to specific create, like how to cut dialogue or an action scene or whatever. It's just like, that just comes with practice. You, um, you know, there's plenty of videos you can watch on technique. Uh, so I'm not going to try to begin to teach people that, but, um, something, I have to constantly remind myself of is don't do your fine edit before you do your rough edit. And this is an important one because a lot of people get wrapped up in, um, you know, they'll be working on a scene and like, they really want to make it flow and be perfect. And, and they want to make the scene feel almost finished um, with its, with the first edit. And so they spend all this time like massaging it and adding like J and L cuts and smoothing out audio and, and even leveling on doing things they don't even need to do at this stage. And they, they, before you know it, that you've spent six hours doing a 90 second scene wow. and you're like, yeah. wow, um, what a waste of time because nine times out of 10, that beautiful scene you just spent six hours constructing, your director's going to come in and be like, oh, I don't like that take. I don't like that line reading. I don't like that. Let me see something different for that. What you think is great is not is the director's never going to see it. They're going <laughs> to see it that way. So it's like you spent all this time perfecting an edit that isn't even the final edit yet. So people get wrapped up and, and, and waste time sort of trying to perfect things before they even need to perfect it. The most important thing is just, just get your rough, get the, t get the pacing of the scene down. Even if it's rough, even if it feels, um, stilted or, or choppy, just, just get the scene down and then start, you know, get, get a, get a big chunk down and then start massaging, you know, like to, um, don't bog yourself down with one, one scene or, or one, like making one this one perfect edit, you know, no such um, thing something, uh, something in a vacuum at least. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, like people think, Oh, this isn't working. I got to make it work before I move on. It's like, no, just, just move on and then come back to it. It'll come to you. Right. And don't forget your advice from earlier in the conversation where this whole thing is collaborative and you, you just can't edit a perfect scene in a vacuum no matter what. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. You, you're going to have directors give input. You're going to have producers give input. Um, so yeah, get through the task. That's, that's, that's a fantastic answer and uh, a way forward. And um, you actually mirrored some of the things that um, Callie Bailey, uh, who's a great editor, uh, had mentioned on this podcast as well. So that just tells me those are tried and true for, for certain, especially around organizational structure. Um, hmm. 
And I'm a little bit biased on you. I've worked with you before, full disclosure. Uh, you've edited some things for for Bonsai a few times, and um, but you really are great at your craft, and that's why it was so important to have you on this podcast to talk about what you do. Um, tell us, um, and, and you've been generous with your time, so I'll wrap up on this thought here, which is um, you're doing some work now with with Bards of Nevermore. Um, Every video I've ever seen them put out or produce any sizzle reel has been brilliantly edited. It's been great. Uh, what is your work with, with them and what are they all about? Um, well, <laughs> funny thing is I'm not currently working for them because <laughs> my LinkedIn's not updated or whatever. <laughs> um, they're great. Well, what was your, they, what was your work with them rather? Sorry. Yeah. So, so they're mostly, well, I don't want to say mostly. They do a lot of corporate video editing, um, promotional type videos for different businesses. Um, they've done some political stuff. Uh, but they primarily want to focus on documentary work. And some of my favorite editing that I've done for them, done for them has not even been released yet, unfortunately. Um, one of the things that I really fell in love with was this web series, uh, documentary web series uh, called tentative title called Paradigm Shifters. And it was this really deep dive into uh, religion, uh, the, specifically the Islam religion and how it relates to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Mm -hmm. And they actually interviewed the son of the founder of Hamas, which is the militant regime in Palestine that controls the Gaza Strip. Oh, I saw a bit of that clip. That looked really powerful, actually. Yeah. So... His name is Masab Hassan Yusuf, and he grew up basically as a terrorist and reformed his life, spied for the Israeli government on his own father, fled Israel and moved to California and almost got deported, but is now living as this like enlightened yogi, just totally reformed. Just I've never, I haven't actually met him, but I'm watching two days of interviews with him. Like he... The way he speaks, he's just on a whole other level of human being. Like he, if anybody has the answers to humanity and how to live and how to be and how to treat other people, it's him. And I don't want to speak to him like he's this sort of godlike figure. He's just sound. He's just very intelligent, and he's just come from a place I couldn't even imagine coming from, and has like completely reformed his life. He's just an amazing person to listen to and has a lot of knowledge, obviously, on the subject. And beyond that, they interviewed a lot of um, Islamic scholars in, in Israel as well. And it's just a powerful documentary. And we turned it into this, this little web series, this seven-episode web series. The whole You can watch the whole series in 50 minutes. Um, and it's really just to inform, enlighten uh, open people's eyes to to the conflict, to um, things they might not know about of uh, the Muslim religion, and yeah, it's it's it was I loved working on it because it, a I was learning so much while I was doing it, but it felt like really important conflict con conflict content. Um, yeah, I can't speak highly uh, highly enough of those guys, the Bards of Nevermore people there a really cool group um, in LA just, just now getting their, their start. And I think they're going to continue to do good work. So um, 
Yeah. That's great. That's great. And uh, I will look out for that and I will definitely watch it. I'm a big fan of, of documentaries and in general. And um, yeah, really, let's that, say that, too, go ahead. Just, sorry, and sorry, just to um, plug a name here, but um, the, the series is directed by um, Danny Carslake. Some people might know, know his name. He directed a, an award-winning documentary um, some time ago called For the Bible Tells Me So, which explores mm-hmm. the idea of homosexuality in the Bible. And uh, really amazing documentary. He's directed a lot of other documentaries since then, but he's an amazing guy. He lives in Berlin, and I had the pleasure of collaborating with him via Skype on the majority of this project. And it was a pretty big, uh, amazing experience for me, working with a, a director who whom I knew and, and actually really respected um, so, so that was cool. So I don't know if and, any of the listeners know, who he is, but he's, he's great and you should look him up. How do you spell you know, his last name? Carslake, K-A-R-S-L-A-K-E, Dan Carslake. K-A-R-S-L-A-K-E. Perfect. Just like it sounds. <laughs> uh, that, that's, that's awesome. That's good. Thank you so much for that. And, um, and like I said, yeah, I, I adore documentaries and um, the, what the documentary is about takes me back to my days in journalism school and how we talked about framing in the news. And um, there's no better case study for that than the Israeli-Palestinian uh, conflict, sure. Um, for, for sure. But um, Wes, this has been a wonderful conversation. Um, thank you for taking some of my weird questions and stride and, and answering them uh, with complete honesty and, and in the most fun, awesome way. And um, I, know you're, I know you're busy um, and, and you, you stayed up. Uh, we're actually doing this at night. So you stayed up late to uh, hang with me a little bit and I appreciate it's it. Only, it's only 920 here. It's okay. It's later where you are. Right. Yeah. But film people, you got to wake up early, man. <laughs> yeah. Thank so, you so much. No, it's it's my pleasure. Tell tell everybody where they can find you. I know people are going to want to look you up, talk talk to you um, on social and on the internet. Um, I you know I'm on I'm on the Facebook. Uh, I spend a lot more time on Instagram, so I have a an inst- Well, that's that's more if you want to see pictures of me and my wife and my dog, and then want to see me rant about movies. But um, <laughs> movies sure. that I see, that's uh, Wessel Sprouts <laughs> is my Instagram handle, which is an old college nickname. That's uh, W-E-S-S-L-E, Sprouts, like Sprouts. Um, <laughs> and then, uh, <laughs> and then I'm, you know, I'm on IMDb, and I don't really, I don't have a website, which is funny because everyone has a website and tells me you should have one, but I don't. Uh, when people ask to see my work, I just gather up a whole bunch of links and just send them that, and then you. <laughs> That's fine. I will warn you that there is a guy out there that does have a website with your name. I believe it's westpowers.com. And, and well, you, he's from Pennsylvania and um, he's, he's a multi hyphenate. He plays banjo. He plays piano. He plays uh, all these different That's instruments, similar. but, but he, he, his, the website is not awesome. Uh, objectively I, speaking. So, Okay, so if the, if the other West Powers is out there and listening to this, I am not being critical of you. I think I love that you're a musician. I'm a musician. Your website needs work, brother. Those those it fonts has, yeah. that that the dad sweater you're wearing it doesn't work. Wow. 
it's so, great. so so maybe you should put up a website right away. <laughs> I think I need to. As to not be confused with that West Powers. Oh wow. If you go into westpowers.com, every anyone that's listening to this, that is not him. It's that's, not me. Yeah. Go go but to IMDB, find West Powers. Yep. Yeah. Or or go so to I his look, Instagram page, you'll see what he really looks like. What what were you I'm saying, look, Wes? I was gonna say I'm gonna look up this guy's albums though, that's for sure. If yeah. he has any. See if his music is fire. <laughs> we might we, we might be we might be judging a book by its cover a little bit too much and he might just give you the next uh, stuff you're listening to for the next three, three or four months. Um, I'm adding him on Spotify as we speak. No. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that's great. That's great. I'm glad. I'm glad. See, this is why I love talking to you. We're always able to enrich each other's lives. Um, exactly. Mutually, Wes. <laughs> mutually beneficial. Relationship. Wes, I can't, I can't wait to see you again. Um, I'm going to be in L.A. soon, as I, as I typically am. And uh, if you beat me uh, to the punch and come to Nashville first, we got to get together and uh, have some two for five beers and, and some burgers. Yes, please. That sounds right. great. Wes, I'll talk to you soon, man. Thank you so much. Thanks, Chris. Take care. Be good. Bye. Bye. You've been listening to the Make It Podcast. To find out more information on this week's creative, including links to their projects and social media feeds, please visit our website at www.bonsai.film forward slash make it. If you haven't already, you can join our podcast community on Apple Podcasts or the podcast app of your choice by searching for Make It Bonsai Creative. If you do that, the show will pop right up. You can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter at underscore Bonsai Creative and on Facebook by searching for Bonsai Creative. And of course, if you're looking to take a big step toward your filmmaking success, go to www.bonsai.film and click on Show Me How to schedule a free discovery meeting and needs assessment. You have everything to gain. Until next time, be better, be creative be engaged. And thank you for listening.